Welcome to WCSU 411, the podcast that tells you everything about Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and today we'll be talking with an alum, Dirk Parafort, who has an interesting career in communication. We'll also hear from our provost, Dr. Missy Alexander, and from Dr. Rada Krell, who will report from the Science Building. And our engineer, P. Puccio, has a conversation with Doug O'Grady, a music professor who also is a beer expert. And then Pete and I will give you a calendar of extremely interesting events coming up on campus. Are you going to go to any of these campus events in the next couple of weeks, Pete? Oh, probably every single one. You're working at them, but any for, <laughs> how about any for entertainment? I always attend every event here on campus. Really? Well, yes. Can you tell me about them afterwards? Because I don't go to all of them. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, we've got a full schedule today. So let's get started with Dirk Parafort, a former reporter at the News Times here in Danbury, who just started work as a writer for Sandy Hook Promise in Newtown. So we're going to start bringing in some alumni, people who went to school here and have been successful, to talk about uh, why they came to WestCon, what they achieved here, and what they've achieved since. And our first alum is Dirk Parafort. He's uh, based here in this region. He came to school here and stayed here. And now he works for Sandy Hook Promise, which some of you have heard about. So we're going to go through his um, timeline. Now, Dirk, when you were uh, here, you were majoring in writing or English or one of those two, right? Uh, well, actually, my original major was anthropology and yeah. sociology with a focus on Middle Eastern culture and politics. Um, and I took a lot of cultural classes in the first three years or so. And then um, it was Dr. Briggs in a journalism class who kind of took me under his wing a little bit and said, Dirk, I think you have some real talent here. We got to kind of push you forward and move you forward. And he kind of guided me through the journalism program and, and moved me in that direction. Well, that's nice. So, mm -hmm. Not that uh, Middle Eastern studies and anthropology isn't good, too, but mm -hmm. journalism is a little more um, practical, right? A little more practical, a little bit more potential to make some money. Not a lot, but <laughs> I, um, if I have time, I just want to make one quick story about Dr. Briggs. Mm. Um, I remember uh, he was my advisor when mm. I was working at the Echo. Mm. And uh, you know, I would submit my stories to him for uh, to edit before I submitted them to the editor at the Echo. And every time it was all covered in red ink all over the place. <laughs> Everything that he wanted me to change and this and that. And uh, the last thing that I wrote for him was a day before graduation. And I gave it to him. He read through it, gave it back to me, and said, "Perfect, wow. you're ready." That's what I. That's what I knew. I was finally ready to go out into the world when I got his approval. <laughs> that didn't take too long. A year. <laughs> True. And you were uh, able to leave WestCon and get a job as a writer right after that. Yes, I. Um, I had actually interned for a while with the Bethel Beacon, a weekly paper uh, that was. Uh, I don't think it was Acorn anymore. It was JRC Journal yeah. Register Company had owned it. I interned for them while I was here, and then they picked me up full-time as soon as I graduated. Um, and that was a great experience because uh, that was still before we had computer layout, so mm -hmm. we actually had to physically paste the pages up with wax onto the pages, and I was involved in all aspects of the um, 
production, which was great, from the writing to the photography to the layout to, um, you know, everything else. So I got to see all facets of the industry, which was really a nice uh, education up front, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you went into daily newspapers, and you ended up at the News Times a few years later, right, here in Danbury? Yeah, I did daily newspapers in Norwalk and then the Connecticut Post for a few years and then uh, came back up to Danbury and uh, to be their uh, political reporter and ended up spending almost 10 years in Danbury at the News Times. Hmm. Um, where I did everything from political writing to I was the business writer for four or five years. I uh, was the breaking morning police shift covering all the uh, breaking news items and all that. Were they trying to fire you at that point, or is that a good thing? (laughs) Actually, I volunteered to jump back into that role, believe it or not. (laughs) I always enjoyed, um, I think, the adrenaline of doing the police beat in the morning. Mm-hmm. Newspapers are fun, right? There is a lot of adrenaline. It's interesting. There All, is. Always interesting stuff going on, too. Yeah, you never know what one day from the next is going to bring. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I really enjoyed that, kind of coming in and not knowing exactly what it was going to bring, and then something would break, and you'd have to just drop everything that you're doing and jump into it. And, you know, you have very little time to do the best job you can and get right. it out. But it's... Uh, um, could be a little stressful, I guess, for some people, <laughs> you know, um, but it's, uh, I loved it. I kind of thrived on it. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. everybody can do it, but if you like it, it's really a great job. Mm-hmm. What, uh, and were you, did you grow up here in Danbury? Uh, I grew up in Bethel, hmm. uh, right downtown Bethel, so right next to Danbury. I mean, Danbury was the where we hung out when we were kids. We'd mm-hmm. ride our bikes, our dirt bikes, to downtown Danbury and go to the palace to watch the matinees and go to the comic book store that used to be next door, pick up a bunch of comics and <laughs> ride those home. So we spent a lot of time in Danbury in my youth, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that the main reason you chose Westcon, or what were you looking for when you were going to college? Um, well, one of the reasons I think why I chose Westcon is because I spent a summer in Israel in between co- in between high school and college, <laughs> and uh, I found that you know I didn't want to go into anthropology. I did have a big interest in the Middle East, and. Westcon had and still does some great professors when it comes to uh, particularly Middle Eastern culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what really kind of, you know, the Jane Goodall Institute at the time was coming into Westcon. So I felt like it was just a really good place to be for, for that. Yeah, that's very interesting. Right in your backyard, too. Yeah, which was perfect. Mm-hmm. And you live in Bethel now? I do. Still, I still live in Bethel. Um, uh, bought a house with my wife. We have three kids. Um, still right in downtown, not too far, uh, maybe three blocks from the house I grew up in. So, um, yeah, I love downtown Bethel. It's a great place to live. It is great. And your mm-hmm. family's around still. Yep. Yeah, so that's nice. Hmm. And you, in the last year, you made a transition from the News Times newspapering to a new organization, right? Yeah, well, I uh, after 10 years at the News Times last November, I decided it was kind of time to make a change. And I left the newspaper uh, about a month later. I started up my own public relations firm, uh, Housatonic Media Services. Uh, and I had been had that going for about a year. Uh, picked up a bunch of different clients, both on the, the business side, people looking to get their brand out there and get more awareness, uh, as well as uh, some political um, work. Uh, right now, I'm the communications director for Chris Sotero, who's uh, the Danbury Democrat running for the mayor against Mount ba- Mark Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love, honestly, doing the uh, 
political side and the political work. Mm. Uh, I think being a political reporter, I always really enjoyed that. That was one of my favorite beats. And um, this kind of gives me an opportunity to kind of stay involved in that that field and that spectrum. Right. Um, so I really enjoy that. How did you go about getting business uh, clients after leaving the paper? Uh, well, I mean, some of it was building off the network that <laughs> I had built over 10 years in the already being in the newspaper industry. Um, a lot of it was, uh, you know, I put you know, I really built up my LinkedIn account. Mm -hmm. I just started calling people who I had knew in the business industry to see if they had needed any uh, assistance. Um, you know, Chris Otero, I had approached him when I saw he was running to see if he wanted, uh, if he had anybody in for communications yet, if it's something he was interested in. Uh, so really, it was just a lot of cold calling, a lot of, uh, you know, digging up businesses, meetings, lots of, lots of coffees at Starbucks, meeting people, and slowly building it up. Um, so I was able to build it up to a pretty decent level. Uh, but then a couple months ago, an opportunity arose at Sandy Hook Promise uh, for an in-house reporter that just really seemed like an ideal position for me. I've always really loved the organization and what they do. Um, I actually covered the, the Sandy Hook tragedy while I was working for the News Times. So it was uh, something that was already very close to me and my family. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of saw it as a perfect fit and, and really was excited about jumping into it. Yeah. And they thought saw you as a perfect fit, too. They did, luckily, so far. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. And so what is Sandy Hook Promise doing right now? Uh, well, Sandy Hook Promise, I mean, the, what I love about Sandy Hook Promise is they're kind of a uh, above-the-politics organization where their main goal is really to try and prevent violence before it happens by building out uh, uh, programs that are research-based uh, that they've been implementing in schools throughout the country. It's free to schools throughout the country. And these are basically programs that help uh, prevent violence in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, start with hello to create a more... Um, you know, embracing environment in the schools and, you know, teach the students how to be a little more empathetic uh, to their fellow students. And then the, the Say Something program, which teaches students to know the signs when there's a student who um, may need some help, you know, albeit, you know, from the extreme of somebody who may be considering doing a, a violent act to somebody who is clearly having issues at home or is having their own, you know, issues that need to be addressed and just need some help. Um, and they have a new uh, anonymous reporting system that goes out with that that allows students to make anonymous tips if they feel like there's a friend in trouble. Um, and that's been rolling out in schools throughout the country and has been uh, very successful. That's so a great far idea. To date. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really, uh, it's great because being their in-house reporter, I've been spending a lot of time talking to school districts and people, uh, volunteers been involved in these programs and hearing all the wonderful, the the positive stories that have come out and the people they've helped, the incidents that they've helped to prevent, uh, which is, you know, as you know, in the reporting side, usually when you show up at an event, it's when mm. everything has already gone bad and right. it's already a tragedy. Yes. So it's really wonderful to be working on all these positive stories right now um, about these great things that are going on in communities around the country as a result of their programs. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, it's kind of nice to have uh, uplifting stories 
to write about during the day. Yeah. And where do they go? Into their own publications or as press releases? Uh, yeah, as press releases. We use them for, uh, you know, social media, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, different messaging we put out for there, uh, for different reports, uh, for a variety of different messaging where we might want stories about our impact and, and what our programs have been doing in the community. Do you do the social media, too? I don't. We have somebody else who manages the social media. That's good. So, mm-hmm. Unlike the News Times, right, where you had to write mm-hmm. the story, send it out on social media, take the photo? The News Times, yeah, you were kind of all in one shop. Mm-hmm. You had to, you, you found your stories, you reported on your stories, you wrote your stories, and then when you were done, you essentially marketed your own stories. Mm-hmm. You, you pushed them out through social media, and you did whatever you could to kind of, you know, help push them and get more attention. Yeah, you kind of had to be the jack of all trades as a reporter and, and yeah. be able to do a little bit of everything. <laughs> and I imagine that Sandy Hook promise your deadlines aren't quite as tight either, no, definitely not. That's that's uh, nice to have a little bit of breathing room instead of having two or three stories that are done at, need to be done by four or five in the afternoon. You have a couple of stories, two or three that need to be done by the end of the week. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, it takes a little of the pressure off, and it gives you a little more time to be able to really craft the stories the way that you want to. Um, you know, as you know, as a writer yourself, you know, you're never truly happy with mm. what you write and what you put out. It's never, you know, they always say it's never really finished. You just hit a deadline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Now, Sandy Hook Promise was founded by a couple of parents who, as, whose kids were murdered at Sandy Hook, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, a couple of the parents whose children were killed at the school uh, started the foundation. Uh, it was about a month after the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they... Uh, Again, like I said, they their focus was really not going. There was a lot of organizations that popped up at the time. You know, many of them went very much into the political slant, into mm-hmm. into the anti-gun realm. Uh, Sandy Hook Promise, I think they've been able to be so successful because they've tried to stay above the political fold and say, you know, let's try and address this before it happens, mm-hmm. and let's help the kids in the uh, community before it actually gets to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed a uh, educator not that long ago out west who uh, actually was in Texas, excuse me, who said the whole community has gone behind it. All mm-hmm. the stores put say hello banners in their windows, so it's become a real community effort. Um, so it, it's great to see that. And, you know, I hope that that kind of shifts uh, culturally, you know, results in some cultural shifts eventually where we have a new generation of kids coming up who are um, want to be upstanders mm-hmm. instead of bystanders and if they see something they decide they want to do something and help mm-hmm. people out so yeah that's mm-hmm. a great message especially if it's going across the country too not just in Connecticut yeah no I mean they have uh, programs and I believe almost all 50 states mm. at this point mm. um, and they've you know they're just growing exponentially year after year uh, they're you know actually looking to bring whole states now in to do their programs instead of going district by district yeah, so. that's good mm-hmm. and uh, they're based in Newtown they are based in Newtown uh, Promise House is in Newtown on Churchill Road hmm. um, but they also have uh, employees who work throughout the country um, in various districts uh, and Promise Leader volunteers who work to bring the message to different districts and hmm. you know try and help um, help them in- implement the programs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do they have to do a lot of fundraising too uh, they do do a lot of fundraising yeah I mean it's 
you know, the, I believe the most of their uh, funding does come from fundraising. Mm. Uh, I haven't been really involved in that piece of the project yet, uh, but I know that that's where a large majority of their funds come from. Yeah, probably a lot of your stories will go to those fundraisers, potential uh, funders, right? Potential donors, yeah, for yeah. leave behinds and things, you know. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've been there for just, what, three weeks or four weeks now? Uh, I think just about a month now I've been there. Yeah, I started September 23rd. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. so what's your next, uh, what are you, uh, are you going to continue to be a writer and reporter, or do they have other things in mind for you after you get your hands around that? Uh, well, I think right now mainly they want me to find all the stories of the impacts that they're making in the community um, and really build those out mm. into, you know, quality pieces that we can use for messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's other internal processes that, you know, they have me working on to try and, you know, develop best practices for how to uh have the communications department work most efficiently when it comes to gathering those stories and and having them available to others in the mm-hmm. organization. So, and does John Briggs know you're working for Sandy Hook Promise? I don't think so. I haven't really had a chance to reach out to him mm-hmm. since I actually got the job. I, I have to reach out to him and say hello again. Well, I know he's been retired our... now for a few years. Oh yeah, so. but he's one of our regular listeners, so he'll find out. Oh, that's great. Shout that's out awesome. to John. Definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, John is. Uh, you know, I give him a lot of credit, honestly, for everything that I accomplished at WestCon and everything I accomplished outside of WestCon. He was a real mentor that really helped guide me onto the path that I am today. So mm-hmm. I give him a lot of credit for that. Yeah, it all started right here at WestCon. It did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thanks for coming in and telling your story, Dirk. It's very interesting. Oh, anytime, definitely, no problem. I enjoy being here. It's great right. to be back at Westcott again. It's a, <laughs> it's a great school, and uh, you know, I think it has some of the best faculty around. Some great programs, and um, you know, anybody who's thinking about coming here, I wouldn't hesitate. Yeah, we love that. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have to prompt you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dirk. No problem. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it. It was great being here. Dr. Missy Alexander is our provost, and in addition to the segment on this podcast, she also writes a weekly blog called The Provost's Office, in which she discusses current issues in higher education. These are all things college administrators will have to deal with someday, and Dr. Alexander has ideas. Well, all provosts and all presidents uh, are obsessed with retention and graduation. It's our job, you know, and a lot of the work that I do is around how do I improve those metrics. And I want to improve those metrics, and I'm happy to say they are improving at our university. You know, we've seen uh, growth in our graduation rate for the last two years, which is exciting for us. I would also tell you that I think that's the result of steps we took at least four or five years ago, right? So, you know, you have to be in it for the long game when you're in higher education, not for the short win. But we do a lot of research in higher ed about, you know, well, what are the things that drive student success? And that's really where 15 to Finish comes from. There's been a lot of scholarship around, you know, how we lose students, how they get kind of bogged down or they opt out at some point because something went wrong, something in life got in the way, whatever. We didn't engage them enough, right? And the metrics say if students are in full-time as opposed to part-time, 
they are more likely to complete a degree. Now, that's almost a silly sentence, right? I mean, well, that's how you complete a degree. <laughs> you have mass credits and, and learning experiences, and it adds up to, in our case, 120 credits, and that's how you get there. But it's a little more than that. They're talking about momentum, that there's a way in which you, you set up the situation so that you feel that sense of, I completed this much, I must be on a roll, I must get there. And I get that. That's all really good stuff. But what I'm seeing is really a flip thinking about cause and correlation, right? So people are thinking that being in 15 credits is the reason students are graduating. Being in 15 credits is the most effective way for a student to graduate in four years. But it's not necessarily the glue. It's not necessarily the key to the momentum. And there are really good reasons why a student might not take 15 credits, right? So I'd love to just sort of reframe the conversation a little bit, you know. Um, yes, ideally, in the magical world where people get to go off to college and do nothing else, full-time load should be the full 15 or whatever your equivalent at your, your university is. And, uh, and you should be able to spend the time on the research and the scholarship and the reading and everything. But that's not what at least a university like us, is uh, built around. We are built around a lot of students who are commuting, juggling jobs, doing other things. And even if they're here full time, and even if they're fully engaged, they may also be, let's see, in uh, co-curriculars that are really engaging, or they might be doing internships that are really engaging and distracting. And they might be in really, really intense um, lab sciences that just honestly take time. Right? And so it might be better for that student that semester to take 12 credits. But it does take them out of, off track for four years and we're done. So we have to think about all of the ways in which we want to promote everybody's knowledge of getting done in a timely manner, but also the dialogue around, but now what's the best route for you in this context in this time? Because momentum can be built in other ways. You know, say, for example, I have some students who say, you know, 12 is just all I can do. 12 is technically full-time, but it won't get you out in, in 120 credits in, in eight semesters because you're going to be down by three a semester. But maybe that's the best thing. So let's just build your plan with that involved. Either it's one extra semester or it's a summer course here and there to keep you on track so you don't feel like you're just behind behind, but that you have a plan to get out. The thing that concerns me the most about us reversing the causality, though, is that we're starting to see policies around incentivizing enrollments, right? Say, go full-time and you can go for free or you can go with this grant or whatever. There's a whole movement across the country around free tuition, something that I think we really need to be having a good, strong conversation about. That I don't want this to sound like I don't want that to happen. But the way that the conversation is going is it seems to be building on this 15 model. And yet, the very students that will most benefit from the reduced cost are likely to be the ones who can't do 15 credits a semester because they either still have to work to pay the rent or they need to spend a little more time on the two lab sciences at once is really overwhelming and it's better off for them to do that. They can only ever go full time. So those very students who might benefit are now not going to get the deal. And that's just not the way to think about this. So I'm grateful for the research. 
it does, it is an important message that I've been trying to convince our students about, right? Because there was some confusion around 12 versus 15 credits. 12 credits means you're full time. It just doesn't mean you're on time, right? And trying to get that education out there. But that is the start of the conversation. Then there's the crafting of your schedule and what works for you. And I think we can improve retention and graduation rates by having that very in-depth conversation and saying, okay, how do we want you to succeed, right? Because here's what happens when a person is taking 15 that shouldn't be. They withdraw from a course a semester. They hurt their GPA. They maybe even fail a class because it was just too much, and then they're behind anyway. So if you plan at the start, you might all be doing better for successful. That's momentum, right? Knowing you can succeed. So I'd just like us to really rethink how we're thinking about this and not make policy decisions or make it uncomfortable for a student to say, hey, but I don't want to do 15. Let's help us get the best plan for each student. That's where I'm going with that. Rita Krell is a biologist by profession, but her hobby is gathering stories for the segment of this podcast that we call the Science Beat. Let's hear from Rita. So it's that time of year. There's a lot of viruses and pathogens going around, including uh, in myself, as you can hear from my voice today. But I thought in the spirit of that, I would tell you a little bit about what's going on in microbiology in the science building at Western Connecticut State University. Microbiology is taught by Dr. Hannah Reynolds, and we're fortunate that we, begin because we're a relatively small uh, department, we're able to partner uh, with different faculty to uh, make sure that the class feels relevant for students. And so Dr. Reynolds has partnered with Dr. Nita Connolly on a specific series of labs where students get to actually test local ticks and find out if they're carrying pathogens, uh, things like Borrelia and Anaplasma, which are bacteria that transmit, uh, that can cause disease in humans when they're transmitted by ticks. And so what's really cool about this lab is it's, it's probably one of the only microbiology labs in the country for undergraduates where they get to have this experience. Um, and so the, the students get real ticks collected from outside and they grind them up uh, and then they get to have experience with um, a procedure called multiplex PCR to test the ticks for pathogens. And they really don't know what they're going to find. Some of the ticks might be carrying these things. Some of them might not. So the students also get to experience that uh, joy of discovery as they go through this process. They get to learn a new technique. And they get to study an animal uh, and pathogens that are highly relevant to uh, the Northeast. So it's a, a really valuable and meaningful experience for the students they get to have right here in the Westcom Biology Department. Okay, Pete, you handled this interview with Doug O'Grady and Beer. Did it go well? Yeah, it's great. It went uh, so well I had to cut out about two-thirds of it. So wow. <laughs> once, we, once we started talking. So he did both brewing and drinking, right? Yes. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> you don't have to wait long. <laughs> Uh, so today in the studio we have Dr. Douglas O'Grady, uh, Associate Professor of Music here at WCSU since 2010. And I know that because I was here for your... My interview. Interview. Yes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the creator and coordinator of the Bachelor of Music Option in Audio and Music Production. You got your doctorate in composition from University of Alabama. 
Your master's in theory and composition from University of Louisiana Lafayette. Yes, Rage and Cajuns. I've done several of your football games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your bachelor's in theory and composition from UMass Dartmouth. Yes. So do you have split loyalty when we play them in football? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and uh, I saw you also did some work at BU in Berkeley. Is that? I did, yeah. Uh, okay. Berkeley was the most recent. I did that while, while teaching here online. Uh, got an audio music production uh, professional certification there. You have a number of recordings and performances all over the country for various artists and ensembles, including some of our very own faculty here. Yes. Okay. Uh, so having said all that, I had you here to ask you about one thing in particular. <laughs> Beer. 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 Yes. Okay. So uh, tell me about Beer. Um, I'm very interested in beer. Uh, <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I guess that most people are, but um, no, it's it's uh, it's something that you know I started getting into craft beer uh, a long time ago when there weren't a lot of breweries around, and uh, I went to Cape Cod Brewing Company uh, in Hyannis. I just thought it would be fun to do a tour there. Um, before that, I was. You know, I was satisfied with whatever beer was on the shelf or whatever. Sure. You know? um, and a tour there was like, you know, a tour of of this this recording studio right here. It's that small, you <laughs> yeah, know. It's, nice. And um, and they basically stood everyone in the middle and said, "Well, that's where we do this, and that's where we do that, and and here, taste this," you know. And and uh, it was the first time I understood um, what went into making good beer and. First time I realized that fresh beer is a good thing. Yeah, very different. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they passed around some of the malted barley and said, here, you can eat it. it you can taste it. And then um, so I did. And it's got this cereal kind of taste to it. And then they passed around the Cape Cod Red uh, that they had brewed with that barley. And I tasted the correlation. And then I was hooked. Sure. So... I've now, since then, I've been to about 85 breweries. Wow. And my kids have been to most of them with me. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, before I ever went on any tours or anything, my brother-in-law was a brewer. So when I met him, and so my sort of experience like that was with him doing it, not yeah. at, a, at a commercial place. Oh, it was great. like in the driveway, you know, that kind of a thing. Right. So, yeah. But yeah, it's, what I always found amazing was the the variety. I know that sounds silly to say, but how much you can do with what's really four ingredients. Oh, it's amazing. And, and you know, I got into home brewing a number of years ago, too. Yeah. I, I took a – well, first I got a Mr. Beer kit for Christmas. Nice. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people start that way. And I made beer with it, and it was okay. But then I wanted to scale up and uh, and really get into it. And I took a, a beginner class at uh, Maltos Express in Maltos Monroe. Maltos is great. Yep. Yeah. And that was before they had opened their brewery, yeah. uh, Voracious Brewing. Was it at the the original place or the, the original one, before yeah. they built the up the, the road on the other side? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, free home, free uh, how to brew class. Of course, the free class turns into you wanting to buy like hundreds the of dollars. The hundred fifty dollars <laughs> starter <laughs> kit, <Yeah>. yes, <laughs> yeah. which I did. And uh, so I've been brewing ever since. And yeah, it's amazing the variety you can get. I mean, it, you can focus on any one of those ingredients and just go, you know, whole hog on tweaking that ingredient yeah you know starting with the water and the water was actually the last thing i got into messing around with you know for 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 a while i was brewing just with uh spring water that i would buy at the grocery store sure um and now i've started adding 
minerals to the water to get uh, it to be certain hardness, certain pH, and and uh, so you can you can and you can buy all those minerals at the at the homebrew shops. Sure. So they'll pre-mix them. So uh, the first time I ever did it, I got the Burton on Trent uh, mix of calcium and okay and that's crazy salts and so you can make your your water taste like an english ale brewed in england wow yeah cool yeah i got uh my first experience was one year for christmas my brother-in-law got me all the stuff i would need to make mead so he got Mm. me a carboy and he got me a siphon and he got you know all these things and uh my sister along with that gave me like 12 pounds of honey Uh and i made my first mead and that's that's i've done a lot of mead and some cider and all the beer i've done has been extract i haven't gotten into any whole grain just because i didn't have the the stuff and i knew once i headed down that road of getting a mill and everything else it was just going to be i couldn't <laughs> yeah. afford there's a lot to go down that road yeah so i've done some all grain stuff but i don't mill my own my own grain. Yeah. so i'll, I'll all have grain, them not whole grain i'll mill the i'll have them mill it for me and then i'll yeah. brew that day yeah you know? that's great yeah i got into cider uh i've, I've actually done one batch of cider and it was out of necessity because I took the kids apple picking at Blue Jay, <laughs> and they picked way too many apples. Sure. And I thought, we're never going to eat all these things before they go bad. And uh, so I looked up a recipe to make cider and realized that you need 15 pounds to make one gallon. Sure. So, uh, so I fired up the juicer, and we had about 15, 20 pounds of apples. It was ridiculous. <laughs> nice. And uh, – it was whatever apples they had picked. So yeah. I don't remember which varieties yeah. they were, but whatever mixture of varieties, it was awesome. Well, that's what I had <laughs> Dr. Filbergain to talk about cider because he was doing uh, pressing out in the quad a few weeks ago. And he said that's specifically what they often do is they call them cider apples. They pick up apples off the ground or wow. it's stuff, you know, it's, it's a blend. So it's not, you're not making. Honeycrisp cider, or right, right, right. you know, gala cider, or whatever it yeah, is. Certain apples bring certain things to the table, yeah. and yeah. Um, so he brought. It was a, a pallet. It was like six or seven hundred pounds. Wow. And he said, I think he said it would make about eighty gallons. Wow. So whatever the math is on that, but yeah, yeah. I used to go buy unpasteurized cider at uh, Beardsley in Shelton. Oh, okay. So they they yeah. press them right there in this little room on the corner, and you take the gallons home, and nice. you know, so. But uh, and cider was was fairly easy. Because um, beer is very labor intensive in the process, it right? Is. The boil yeah. and yet making sure everything's right and everything else. Mead is easy, but takes forever. It's like oh, to ferment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a year, a year and a half before you can yeah. have any of it. So, well, that's a good thing about beer. Brew day is a little labor intensive. Yeah, a couple hours, more than a couple hours for the day. But then you can be drinking beer in like two or three weeks. Yeah, so that's, that's great. Nice. We used to do, when I was a kid, we did root beer every summer. Oh, nice. So we do yeah. very simple, you know, a five-gallon bucket, water, sugar, root beer extract, put it in bottles and leave it in the closet for a couple of weeks and you yeah. have root beer. Um, and we never sanitized anything. It was always like you'd clean it, but it wasn't yeah. like when you're brewing, everything has to be That's the, crystal the, clear, the perfectly yeah, yeah. clean. Yeah. And as soon as I, I tried to make root beer having like following all the beer protocols and it didn't work. Oh, so when I made root beer dirty, it was perfect. You need, you and, need all that flora in <laughs> yeah, the air. <laughs> so that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. Um, have you ever had any of Allagash's Cool Ship yes, stuff? Yes, yes. I went to Allagash this summer. Nice. Um, uh, 
among many breweries uh, <laughs> up in Portland area this summer. Um, yeah, I went to Allagash, and I mean, they're just masters of of that style. Yeah, you know, and um, we couldn't get in. It was so busy we couldn't get in for a tour um, to see the cool ship. But uh, Two Roads Area Two in Stratford, they have a huge cool ship. Do they? Yes, and you can see it on the tour. Okay, and uh, it is it is impressive. It's quite a quite a vessel. So for for anybody who doesn't know, a cool ship is essentially when you when you ferment, you you mix all your stuff together and you add the yeast and then you basically seal it up and let it do its thing. The yeast right. eats the sugar and turns into alcohol. And uh, cool ship, you you don't add any yeast. Nope, it's just you from the air. Mix the stuff yeah. and put it in an open container and let whatever's in the air let in there take its course. and cross your fingers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is how they originally. Exactly. Brewed anyway. Like I was, I was doing a little bit of research, and uh, I'm not going to pronounce the German word, but in uh, the Bavarian beer laws in the early 1500s, um, and the only ingredients that were allowed were water, barley, and hops, right? Because they didn't know that they yeast, didn't even know yeast was a existed. thing. You yeah. just mix these together, and right. voila, you got you've you got know, booze and bubbles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, drinking beer at Area Two, um, everything is. Literally everything is locally sourced, including the yeast and the bacteria that's floating in the air. Wow. Uh, so it's truly Connecticut beer. Cool. Uh, do you have any, any particular beers or breweries you'd recommend for anybody who is... Oh, yes. So <laughs> depending <laughs> on what you're looking for. So, uh, of course, uh, Treehouse Brewing in Charlton, Massachusetts is, you know, one of the number one breweries in the country although you'll never find their beer in the stores you have to go yeah. to the brewery um so they're they're my favorite for you know the hazy new england ipas and uh and it's a nice place to visit but it's so crowded it's not a good place to hang out um in terms of you know i have a 12 year old and a 10 year old boy and so bringing those guys to breweries with me i've found that the absolute most family friendly brewery is Charter Oak here in Danbury. Really? Oh, yes. Okay. They, they are so nice. They have family nights there. Um, they're just very nice people. They make Great. very good beer. They've been making beer since before they opened the brewery in Danbury for years. Yeah. It's about five minutes from here, too, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's very convenient. I, I see other faculty there. Um, cool. <laughs> and let's see, for, uh, for stouts, I uh, really like, well, Treehouse, again, makes some great dessert stouts okay um trillium in boston makes outstanding stouts sure um but for connecticut breweries i'd have to say uh some of my favorites are five churches okay in uh new britain and um i really like voracious in monroe i haven't had any of theirs yet i just i keep driving by it and it's amazing because you can go there and and many breweries have you know five or six beers on tap, and they regularly have, like, 15. Yeah. Wow. Same with Charter Oak. Charter Oak has usually about 12 on tap. Um, I haven't had a ton of them, but everything I've had from Kent Falls has been really excellent. Oh, yeah. So I've, I've never been, there. been there. I haven't, yeah. But, yeah, but. They, they're they kind of hard to keep track of because, you know, you'll drink a beer from them, and then you might not see it for months. Yeah. You know, and but they, they're constantly coming up with new recipes. It's very interesting. Yeah. The... Uh, my wife and I, we honeymooned in Vermont, and we were oh. up the mountain from The Alchemist. Oh, boy. Who was closed. I don't think they were open the week we were there, 
but we were able to go down and, you know, it was at like the height of the heady topper. Yeah. You know, uh, that was a gateway here for me into the uh, the really the New England style IPAs, yeah. and that was a gateway for everybody. I mean, yeah, you know, before Heady Topper, beer was crisp and clear. Yep, and you know they put they put this messy looking beer in a can and said, <laughs> "Drink from the can, don't pour this in a glass." Yeah, it says it right on the side, yeah, right there. And I think they didn't want people to see how ugly it was, <laughs> but now we don't consider that ugly. Yeah, Hazy is is beautiful now, yeah. Yeah. and it's funny because you could only buy. There were rules. It was like you could buy two four packs. So you had to drive around town. We had to go buy, you know, because my brother in law wanted it, my cousin wanted it. So right. I was like, by all week, we were going down into town and buying them at different places wow. and stuff. So, but uh, same thing happened with, uh, what is it, Sip of Sunshine? Oh, yeah. Well, that's an interesting story because uh, Lawson's Finest Liquids, yeah. they're a Vermont brewer, and they had Sip of Sunshine. And uh, it was very hard to get. I used to put my name on a list at one of the liquor stores in New Milford, and and uh, and they'd call me when my four pack came in that I could buy. <laughs> and um, but they started contract brewing at Two Roads, ah. and so that now it's ubiquitous. You can find Sip of Sunshine everywhere. Okay. Now the price hasn't come down at all. Sure, but it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's everywhere. I for a while I had to do that to get. Uh, the 120 minute IPA from Dogfish, oh, Dogfish after they had the shortage that year. Right. So people were hoarding it and you had to like wink at the guy behind the register right. to get, you know, it's like it's they had one bottle hidden away. Or... You mentioned the the wink at the guy. Uh, yeah. It's funny. Uh, Dr. Greg Haynes, our percussion professor, uh, he and I were talking that maybe we wanted to get one of the Sam Adams utopias that are being released. Oh, okay. And uh, the, these are, you know, um, it's almost like a liquor. I've never tried it before. Interesting. And it's they mix last year's batch with this year's batch and then referment it and it's so it's it's been in the making for like 20 years, you know, because huh. they come out with it every year. So it's a big deal. And uh he mentioned to me yesterday that he went into one of the liquor stores here and said, "Hey, are you guys going to get the Utopia?" And he said uh the way he said it, he said the guy said no, but in a way like it was no because I didn't say the right password or Got something. It. <laughs> it's like, we're try, how do we get this beer? We yeah. have to try it. That's great. We could talk about this all day. Yeah. But uh, it, thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks for talking about me. beer. Yeah. So this is now two two of these segments, and they've both been about beverages. Oh. So I don't know if I have to keep going with the beverages or get as far away from well, them as I can. We'll see. It's going to help you think of but, your yeah. name. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Our co-host, Chantel Williams, sometimes gets called away for important activities that keep her from her podcasting duties. And today is one of those days. So Pete and I are going to take over, and we will hand them back to her when she returns next week. So Pete, we've got a big deal on Monday, November 18th, when Farouk Kaswari comes to campus to sign copies of his memoir. He's the CEO of Ethan Allen, the furniture store that is headquartered in Danbury, and he was born in Kashmir, that little spot of land in Asia that Pakistan and India keep fighting over. He's also a genius, and our friend Chris Cook and one of Chris's honor students is going to interview him, and then Mr. Kathwari will sign books. That all starts at 5 p.m. in the ballroom of the Westside Campus Center, and again, that's Monday, November 18th. Yeah, a few years ago, he came to talk to some of the business students, and I, I caught some of his 
autobiography, and it's fascinating. It is fascinating. You you always assume that people have kind of a similar background to you, and in this case, it's just nothing like anything I've ever experienced. So it's it's very cool. If you like to talk about cricket, he'll do that for hours and hours. (laughs) He's really an interesting guy, very successful, too, and a friend of uh, Westcon's. So if you can make that, please do. And here's another event that Chris Cook started. Pete, you know he's the director of the Honors House, right? The Kathwari Honors House. Yes. And you know he likes to show off a little bit. (laughs) No comment. (laughs) (laughs) So Chris and the Kathwari Honors Program and the Honors Students of Compassion will host Honors Fancy Friday. That's happening at noon on November 22nd. It's in the Student Center in what they call the Danbury Room on the Midtown Campus. So if you're a student or a member of the faculty or staff, you can attend this. You have to dress up in your best clothes or as a character from Super Smash Brothers. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, you have to get reservations, too, but that's easy to do. So it started, uh, or I learned about this because Chris showed up at the apple cider making event that we had a few weeks ago, and he was dressed in a um, in his tuxedo. So they did a whole episode about this on the Compassionate Achiever podcast, oh. where they he talked about the the impetus of the whole thing and how hmm. it was going to become an event and stuff. So if you want to, that was a, a couple weeks ago. Um, it was also they talked about identity politics in that episode. So. But, uh, yeah, learn all you can about Fancy Friday. Yeah, go back and listen to that podcast and then dress up. What is a Super Smash Brothers character? It's a Nintendo video game. I don't know know how that comes into Fancy. Yeah, I don't either. (laughs) Possum or the Hedgehog. I don't know. (laughs) We'll see what Chris is going to dress like. And here's something Chantel would definitely mention if she were here, not taking the day off. <laughs> On November 23rd, Pack Bingo. Oh, yeah. So the uh, University Program Activities Council, with all of Chantel's friends, are hosting Late Night Bingo at 10 p.m. in the ballroom of the Campus Center on the Westside Campus. So it includes $1,000 worth of prizes. Chantel has never won, but she's uh, going to keep trying. It's free, open WCSU students only, so professors can't show up. Pete, you can't be there. Even if I dress as a Super Smash Brothers character? I, I, they might let you watch. <laughs> One of our student workers goes to it and wins like hundreds of dollars in prizes every time she goes. Really? So it's, it's no joke. I thought it was just kind of like old ladies playing bingo at church, but yeah. no, you, they. she got yelled at one time because she won a a PlayStation or something, and some guy wanted it, and so it's... I'm not trying to scare people out of going. I'm just saying the point is there there are really good prizes. Well, here's something that might scare you out of going. Participants are invited to wear pajamas and bring pillows and blankets. Okay. Is it late at night or something? Well, it's at 10 p.m., but usually everything's getting, you know, going by then. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't publicize this. It sounds weird. (laughs) Bingo, pajama, jammy, jam. Yeah. Yeah. Only bad things can happen. But Chantel will be there. And um, I think that kind of wraps up our events calendar. We'll ask Chantel more about bingo next week. Well, we got the last home football game this weekend, Senior Day. Oh, well, that's something to go to. And if you can't make it, of course, it's going to be streamed live, wcsu.edu slash live. 
Maybe I'll watch that. Maybe, Maybe. I'll watch it and go to the game. Oh, watch it at the game. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm the one on my phone. We're watching my <laughs> phone one. while the game is on. <laughs> uh, one other thing we have on November 19th, the Scholars in Action, which uh, you've been to these, right? It's a I panel have. discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be in Midtown, Whitehall, room 127 at 530 on uh, November 19th. And our professors, there's five of them, I think, or five or one, six or two, seven. Three. Four, five. It looks like five anyway, yeah. yeah. They talk about their research, and it's often very interesting. And um, aren't we going to record this for a podcast, too? We are. So keep an eye on your feed for that. Yeah. So you don't even—I mean, you should go, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can't go because you're in class, you can pick it up on uh, WCSU 411 later uh, this month or next month, maybe. We aren't sure yet. <laughs> It'll still be green. All right. I think that's it for events. Yeah. So now I get to say thank you to you. Oh, you're yeah. welcome. You're welcome. I never yeah. get to say you're welcome to your <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being our engineer, making this podcast happen. We haven't really seen our producer, Scott Volpe, in a while, and everything's been running just fine, but uh, we'll <laughs> thank him too, right? Yeah. No oh, good. Remember, you can download all our episodes at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you go for your podcasts. Listen every week, leave a review, or email Chantel directly. She would be happy to hear from you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. For Chantel Williams and Pete Puccio, this is Paul Steinmetz and WCSU 411.